forward a couple of years. We're at the end of 2010. Randy Hill Shaw and the 21st Bar retires. And everybody starts up at the bar to become an immediate point of contact for the SDR. And it kind of languishes until we get into early 2012. So we're another year and a half, almost two years down the road here, and we're almost four years out from the initial allegation against my in early 2012, H. Todd, the SBI, realizes that Barr has made a complaint against David Preston. So, again, two more years go by. We get into 2014. And the SBI, I would assume because uh, the agent didn't have a very strong contact anymore with Barr, realizes that she's kind of falling behind in what the Barr's been doing. And that the Barr has disbarred. It's investigated and then punished and disbarred in the vessel in 2013. But that's good. You know about that until 2014. So now we're 2014. We are six years out from the initial allegation. And the SBI, which still has never served a subpoena for the body of the serves a search warrant on the bar to collect everything the bar has. And does. Gets everything from the bar. Their investigation is over. The SBI gets all the documents, which are described as several hundred documents and spreadsheets with several thousand lines of records of the It's important to realize that we follow the path they make. We have David Vessel coming forward initially with an incomplete set of documents and gives them this. That makes it sway to the bar. Uh, the SBI is, as it's doing its little kind of Examples that keeps 
coming out of this case is this again, like an undercover police officer and other activity is still going on. You may still have an officer embedded gang looking to get other events, but just go along with the investigation and report against the first event. You will compromise the safety of the other officer. That kind of situation, courts have said, no problem, you can delay until the investigation is done. What we see in this case, we have not applied right? We have uh, I think we stopped off in 2014, visiting for the SBI of the case. And then the year goes by when the SBI puts together the emergency gun gets reformed. Then it takes to pull the prosecutor. And he has it for a year before he sends it to the conference and district attorneys. Once it hits the conference and district attorneys, and their special uh, financial crimes prosecution, which is in 2016. So another two years down the line, it goes to one prosecutor, she does nothing with it. It goes to another prosecutor, he does nothing with it. And finally it gets to the third prosecutor who ultimately pushes for the indictment uh, in 2018. So this has been passed along, and, and that's sort of delay it is the delay that I think meets the second element test. It's an unnecessary delay. Nothing changed while his first prosecutor was in. Nothing, nothing uh, forced the SBI to wait six years for an investigation. It's flawed. I'm going to ask that in, in the record. Is there is there any articulation of of, of why any any reason given that the, the, the state bar investigation needed to proceed prior to uh, the investigation of your client? Uh, but I don't. I think the quote that we have was just that the SBI agent uh, was having conversations, but was both waiting on the North Carolina State Board to complete their investigation. Um, I can't think, I mean, I, I imagine that if, if the SBI agent was asked that question, she may say something like, well, it is inefficient to have two agencies conduct a separate investigation at the same time. But we don't have that testimony. But I don't think that is a sufficient response or a sufficient justification for this delay. We're talking about a criminal investigation of my client and state law disciplinary proceeding until the attorney. It was too long on parallel tracks. And had there been better communication between the bar and the SBI, um, maybe it's been a little bit of on parallel tracks. What's the burden on each party on the case on a motion to dismiss on, on this issue? Is the, is the burden on the defendant to show prejudice and unnecessariness of the delay, or, or is there any burden shifting? Is, is the state required to come forward and make a showing that, that yes, we delayed, but it was for a necessary purpose? Uh, I don't believe I've read a case where a court has uh, expressed a formal burden formula essentially no 
this was not a delay executed for a tactical reason by the state. So, in Judge Fox's opinion, uh, Mr. Rice had failed to satisfy the second element of the test. Therefore, he was going to deny the motion to dismiss. Does that announce any manufactured violence? Uh, and he instructs or he requests that the prosecutor draft the order, which is the responsibility of the state accepted. And then, uh, before Judge Fox can sign the order, he retires And in this case, we receive Judge Dunlop. Uh, a year later, a little bit more than a year, Judge Dunlop executes the order, which is, according to Judge Dunlop, it is being executed. Um, it's really being issued by Judge Fox. He's just signing it. Was there was there a hearing before Judge Shunlow? Not on this issue. I think that is one of the most important aspects of this case. As the court can tell, I mean, there are a lot of issues in this case. I mean, we've got two federal circuit splits that we talked about in between our our big arguments. Um, we've got 50 years of development of these ideas. Uh, but if we look at the first look for a kind of clean issue, I think it is Judge Dunlow's lack of a hearing that can really decide this case. Because I don't believe that Judge Dunlow had the authority to sign that written without the hearing. Look at the actual written order signed by Judge Dunlow. He signs it pursuant to Rule 63 and the Rules of Civil Procedure. I don't think that rule gives him the authority to sign it in the criminal context. What he needed to do was to go back and have the hearing on the motion. But, you know, of course, our rules of procedure, actually, most of our criminal procedure rules in North Carolina are, are statutory. Um, are you, so you have Rule 63 in the civil context, or are you aware of anything that would, that would apply similarly in the, under the criminal procedure statute? I'm not, and I. I don't want to speak for opposing counsel, but uh, we argued in a brief that there was no comparable criminal statutory authority. And the state uh, didn't want to make its brief. So to me, although I can say that's a concession, I think it's strong evidence that neither of us were able to find anything on the criminal side that justified the judge Dunlop signing this order without warning either. So even if Rule 63 applied, just for purposes of hypothetically, um, you know, would Judge Dunlow have had the authority to sign it under Rule 63? Yeah, Rule 63 applied. Uh, he would give him the authority, just like he would in the civil context, to sign some kind of thing. Could have, I look at it as like he can just put the signature Judge Fox has already good to go. So Judge Fox had filled out that order and just needed to put his name on a piece of paper and get a judge to sign it. I think that's what Rule 63 authorizes the judge to do in civil context. And if, if we take your assumption and we bring it to criminal, let's say he has the same authority. But kind of the next level of the problem in this case is that that's not what Judge Dunn did. So he exceeded what this court has called a ministerial authority, which is just get the job done for his judge. And he did well into uh, taking judicial action. And you see that in the last four weeks of reading based on our briefs that Judge Foss did not announce any violence in fact as part of this legal ruling at the end of the year. He just decided uh, two conclusions of law. But then we fast forward a year and we get to Judge Dunlow's written order, we have 23 violence in fact. 11 conclusions of law, one of which is in direct contrast with what Judge Fox said. Fox said, my client has a prejudice by the state. And Judge Dunlow was saying she was not subject to prejudice. Your question, Your Honor, I, this is a judicial action. So even if Rule 63 gave Judge Dunlow the authority, he has exceeded that ministerial authority by taking judicial action. To me, 
think that sets the baseline of the belief that my client's I think the remedy here is, in this case, it's just decided based on that action. We send this back to the trial court, have either Judge Dunbar or a different Supreme Court judge hold a new hearing on the motion uh, with or without additional instruction from this court as to how to, uh, how to apply the two law test. But at any rate, have a new hearing issue. I think that is a way to solve part of this case. And I think, like I said, I think that's the baseline of remedy here. I use the term baseline because I think that a judge files here in a fine law test, only to have the state had executed this for tactical reasons. And a judge box applied the appropriate test. Before we get to the, to the, the merits piece, getting back to the, um, the authority to sign the, the order, uh, the state contends that some of that issue was not, uh, was not preserved uh, in the trial court. Um, was, was there an, an opportunity to object? Was there, I mean, was there a way to preserve it? Within the trial court, an opportunity to preserve in the trial court, or, or is it your contention that this is an issue that's, that's actually preserved as a matter of law? All of the above. I think that uh, when you look at trial counsel's response to Judge Fox's oral work, I think it just asked if it could be set aside and the confusion of her side piece of paper. Just say, was this preserved? We look at the intent, which would be she Follow motion. She can't work. She argued the motion. Uh, she got a ruling. And in this case, she was a trial attorney, even made it her exception at the end of the hearing, and then filed an exception. Uh, made her out. So you think about Judge Fox's decision. To me, that is really preserved just based on regular role intent preservation. Uh, I think that covers. Judge Dunlow's work, because we accept that Judge Dunlow had the ability, then it's he's beating Judge Fox. It's the same thing. He's stepping into Judge Fox's shoes as a substitute judge and as a preserver. Let's say that I'm wrong about this. Judge Dunlow's work is still preserved by law. And that is Henry K. Ant, Supreme Court case. 63 did authorize the judge to act as a substitute judge. Before he got to the Supreme Court, challenged, challenged the complaint preservation cases. The Supreme Court said that Rule 63, the judge's ability to step in under Rule 63 was automatically So if he is Judge Dunlop had the step in and be a substitute judge. And that is preserved. My mind didn't do anything else. In fact, I think that matter would, as far as the subject matter jurisdiction, Judge Dunlop. And I think I could challenge you today for the first time on appeals in the subject matter jurisdiction. So, that's a long answer to your question, but I think what it, what it indicates is that there are multiple avenues to preservation. Which it hasn't been preserved. I think it's pretty good. So. That's what it was. Well, we further request in terms of, I mean, by, by ultimate request,
maybe the more direct question is, is, is a remand not necessary to the trial court simply for the purpose of actually engaging in an evidentiary hearing and, and fact-finding based on the, the proffers of evidence to determine these issues of um, prejudice and, and reason for delay? Uh, let me kind of split that answer into the two prongs of analysis. Uh, I think the question of prejudice uh, has been answered. I appreciate that the state now has a different view, but uh, this court has often said that it is a superior court judges you get to see the witnesses and really make judgments about, judgments about credibility. Uh, and so much of this goes back to David Messman. He testified in front of Judge Fox in the hearing. Get to the end of that here, Judge Fox says, certainly it's prejudice. Right? That, that's the thing that matters on the prejudice. And in fact, we see that um, from the prosecutor. Back at, at the end of that hearing, the prosecutor stands up to argue, and he all but concedes that issue of prejudice. says, First, the defendant has to establish that she has in some way been actually and substantially prejudiced. I will go ahead and say to this court, and while I'm not willing to make a concession, I think that element is one that I do not have a very firm to stand And I bring that up because when you're talking about the folks who are the closest to the testimony, the closest to the evidence in this case, Judge Fox actually saw the witnesses. My timer just went off, but I'll let you finish your answer. You can finish your answer. Okay. Um, we have the prosecutor who ultimately brought the indictment, and we have the trial court judge who saw the witnesses. The prosecutor says, I don't have a firm belief to argue about prejudice. The superior court judge says, there certainly are prejudice. You asked me about the fact finding. I think that. Um, Finding the fact that we can talk, maybe not if there's no material conflict in the evidence. 
by stating it's well settled that a written order is not necessary if there's no material conflict. And, that, and that's certainly true when we're talking about suppression motions. That, that's true for any motion. And a burden we are is not the defendant. That burden has been changed. And the burden to show such things was on her and none of the evidence that she was no matter how you view it, met the actual prejudice requirement under that first. So what was the rationale for including findings of fact in the, in the written order for Judge Johnson? I believe that just like with, with many of the cases uh, in Recat KN, you know, when the second order is issued, most most superior court judges would like to issue a written order. And for purposes of Judge Judge Dunlow, he made very clear that he was not issuing an order, that he was signing an order on behalf of Judge Fox after What was the what was the basis of being able to say that the findings of fact that are contained in the written order are in fact those recited by Judge Fox? Where, where does that come from? We have not made the claim the findings in, in that second order pronounced by Judge Fox, but the case law is clear on the issue of substitution, that the presumption is that it's Judge Fox's report, and this court can simply look to the evidentiary hearing and see if there's confidence. It's the movement's burden to show that that presumption is erroneous. Now, uh, where is this? So we know it. We, we know what Judge Fox announced at the close of the hearing. He didn't make findings of fact. He did not issue um, findings of fact. And, and he actually found prejudice, concluded there was prejudice. There are any conclusions that Judge Fox made are only relevant to this. Okay, well, I understand that, but I mean, the order, when we're talking about the fact that Judge Dunlow is, is creating an order that's supposed to reflect what Judge Fox rendered at the hearing, right? That is correct. And as this court will never be, it argues strongly that Judge Dunlow's order necessarily encompassed. We didn't argue that, but we argued was the presumption is there. The presumption that it was. That it was issued in due course. And there's no evidence that Judge Fox didn't have a conversation with Judge So you're saying that a judge could enter an order based on a conversation with a previous judge? Um, where that judge had not made findings of fact. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Honestly, you don't need to get into this. We said the second order. You mean the Judge Dunlow's order? Judge Dunlow's order encompassing Judge Fox's order. What we need to look at is the ruling that Judge Fox made. But that was never written down, except in Judge Dunlow's order. It doesn't need to be that, that being, let's assume that's the case for a moment. Is it the state's then position that, that Judge Fox's ruling uh, as it relates to the prejudice problem is, is binding? It's, it's, well, the ruling is never binding on this court. It's a right, uh, right result for one reason, jurisprudence out there. Uh, the ruling, the ultimate ruling denying the claim is the ruling that Judge Fox made. In terms of what conclusions of law we arrived at, um, whether or not the offhand remark during the hearing constitutes a Thank you. 
there's no findings of fact, then uh, what is this Judge Fox's conclusion that there was prejudice based on? Your Honor, this court doesn't look at Judge Fox's conclusion. Okay, well, I, I'm just, I'm getting a little confused because um, you, you're saying that we could just rely on Judge Fox's order, which is the ultimate result of that, denying the motion to dismiss. But he concluded there was prejudice. So he wants to ignore the part where he concludes there is prejudice and just skip to the motion to dismiss is denied. Ultimately, I know the question for this court is whether or not the ruling, uh, in other words, denying the motion was correct. It does not matter whether the reasons given were superfluous or incorrect. So yes, ultimately the only thing for this court is whether or not the judge, whether the denial of the motion was correct. And if it was, under any, under any case law, out there, there was no showing at the hearing of actual prejudice. There was no showing at the hearing that the bad claim was absolutely the same. In fact, it's almost the standard enforcement. It misrepresents what the standard is. There's no standard if the defendant happens to show that some part of the delay was quote unquote unnecessary.
was actually no evidence that any attempt was made to get these records from Cody. I'm assuming, yes, that those are no longer happening.
this court says it in Holmes, it says it in Davis, it says it in Eckliff, among others. But the United States Supreme Court says it in Oscar, Govia, and Youngblood. Well, of course, the basic inquiry of any due process violation is whether the conduct indicates the fundamental perceptions of justice that violates the community's sense of fair play and decency. The courts have been very clear that in order to show that, you have to meet this two-pronged test. And while there is, of course, some balancing of those problems in any court, because you, you one can imagine a case where there's some showing of actual prejudice and some showing of some intentional delay, that still would warrant dismissal of the charges of the trial. But let's look at the actual. I hesitate to go down this rabbit hole, but I'd like to talk about the Fourth Circuit conflict. Point this court to the Alderman Court, which is a district court of Virginia case from 1976 that outlines what the test was across the country pre-Lavosco. So pre-Lavosco, there was confusion about whether or not there was a one or two wrong test. And Alderman sets out all the sort of dissenting opinions out there, always works red mirror, which was the case at that time. The ninth sort of position predates Lavosco. It comes from the United States and the UK. That's the memory. But the Fourth Circuit Court does as well. Although it wasn't the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that held, I would point to Alderman, Lonkin, and Mandel, also there for the state's memory. That outlined what the test was pre Lavosco in North Carolina. Following Lavosco, it's true that all courts have then adopted an official two prong test, not really one prong test. But there was some way over to be sure in the Fourth Circuit. But in practice, it's not even clear that the Fourth Circuit isn't actually following Lavosco. Jones v. Aguiloni notes that the, the court and how the Fourth Circuit and how very likely is running contrary to the United States in the Lavosco case with the Supreme Court. And the reason it probably hasn't matriculated up to the court is following how there are 40 cases with the Fourth Circuit. Aside from one 2023, there has been no reversal, no dismissal on due process grounds in the Fourth Circuit or the Fourth Circuit District Court. So that's a Fourth Circuit District Court, not a Fourth Circuit case. And in fact, in almost every case, the Fourth Circuit that has cited Powell dismisses the claim due to a failure to show prejudice, an intentional or malicious delay, or both. Indeed, Powell actually followed and cited affirmatively automated labs. And in automated labs, the Fourth Circuit first found that there was no actual prejudice, meaning there was no official favorable evidence. But then it said, assuming slight prejudice, it seems clear that there is no violation of due process when the government's reasons are considered. The government contends that the delay was justified by a lengthy administrative process in the FDA. This court must have that case. That's a three-year review by the FDA, almost identical to a four-and-a-half-year review from the State Department's case. Following the FDA's conclusion, excuse me, conclusion of the FDA investigation, it then took another 45 months in automated labs to charge the defendant. And that was attributable to the time required for government attorneys to become familiar with the case, which was complex, manpower problems in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And then even after they got to the U.S. Attorney's Office, additional investigative activities were required when it reached those government prosecutors. And that was, again, due to the complex nature of this case. And if you look at this case, this is 47,000 pages of discovery that each prosecutor would have to review before making or could review doing their job before making a recommendation as to whether to exonerate the case. So doesn't that sort of highlight the question, even applying the deliberate and necessary test? It seems the state's position was, well, no, it was deliberate. It wasn't done in bad faith, necessarily, but it was deliberate. But it was necessary. And again, so the defendant wants to focus on the word necessary. No court has held a showing of just unnecessary delay is enough. If the test is deliberate and unnecessary, it has to be both. And it must be 
If you're taught here, if this court should wait for them, you should prevent it from being here. That's not what appellate courts do. We don't, we don't send something back because it would have been better. Or Judge Fox could have been injured. There has to be, the burden is on the defendant to show the error happened below. And if, if that wasn't on the showing made in the hearing in front of Judge Fox, you don't get a second bite of the gun. You don't get a new hearing because you failed the burdens. So we're saying everything else is relevant. Look at the showing made at the hearing. On that evidence, in the light most favorable to the defendant, is there any showing of actual prejudice under the correct interpretation of the state don't agree with each other. And when the state disagrees with the 
think what that means is that uh, it's not as we can show this is being Start fresh. 